Well, appropriate enough, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15, and we'll be there in a few moments. Luke chapter 15. We are in a multi-part series on the prodigal son, and today we are going to be looking into the young man's life, who in all ways for a time was prodigal. Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> And if you place, go ahead and stand today. We need to get right to it this morning. This is the third parable that Jesus tells about lost things. And the theme of chapter 15 is the joy that heaven uh, has when lost things, when we, are found. And that is the theme. Look at me in the first verse of Luke's 15th chapter of that gospel. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Two groups of people. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. The scribes and Pharisees had many complaints against Jesus. But this one that he receiveth, that he eateth with sinners, was a theme uh, throughout their time of condemn condemning him for that. And so Jesus tells two stories <clears throat> about finding lost things. And then the third begins in verse 11, the most detailed. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted, this is where, where we get prodigal, he prodigaled and or he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe. That would have been the father's robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Our Holy Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have provided for us to assemble together. Lord, as your people, as a church. Lord, our intent today has been to worship you. Lord, to edify each other. 
Lord, to sing your praises, and, and now, Lord, to examine, Lord, ourselves in light of your word. We're here for more than learning. We're, mere, we're here for more than just academic understanding of your word. Lord, we're here for reflection, examination, introspection. Lord, these stories were told for us to see ourselves in them. And Lord, when we are in an errant place to make correction. Help us with that today, Lord, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing today. This morning we will begin the second part of the look of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Of course, today we read only half of it. Many consider this parable to be the most detailed and finely painted of all the parables that Jesus told. Its color and its depth intended not to complicate the primary meaning, which happens to be the joy that is had in heaven when lost things are found. Rather, the detail and the color is there to accentuate and bring depth to the meaning of the story. This parable, like others, is intended to be a reflective truth. It is a parable. Uh, it parallels a truth that we are to come alongside, see the truth, and then go, aha, we are in it. Much like when David uh, saw himself in the picture that Nathan painted, that he was the man, God wants us to find ourselves in these stories and then make appropriate spiritual application to who we see. It is to be a mirror of ourselves. Whether that be with the audience of the sinners in the far country who take the goodness of God for granted, or the self-righteous and smug who have allowed religion to substitute for relationship. As I said last week, religion is no substitute for relationship with the Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Both audiences, the spectrum of those listening to Jesus speak, were all equally alienated from God. One group of in danger of destroying their lives through indifference to God, through wanton and wasted prodigal living, and another actually uh, in greater danger, the hypocrites, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, because in their morality they saw no need for God. And so look with me, if you would, in this parable again in verse number 1 and 2, as we look at these verses, then drew near to him this audience, this two sides of the spectrum, the sinners who heard him gladly and the Pharisees and scribes who tried to persuade people not to follow him. Jesus was now in the final chapter of his earthly life. His destination of the cross was drawing near. And Jesus is looking upon his audiences, uh, this, these crowds gathered, and he was making his final gospel pleas to them. He was calling sinners and he was calling the lost. He was calling the estranged to come home, to find forgiveness in his future atoning work, to realize that he was in fact the incarnate God come to reconcile men back to himself, to the heavenly father. The Bible tells us that during these days, many people flocked to Jesus. The crowds were large and in the thousands. Most notably, though, the sinners were in greater attendance. They heard something of this call to home that resonated in their hearts, that their wayward life could be forgiven. Um, these people, 
were held in very ill regard and esteem by the religious establishment, the publicans, the, the Pharisees, the tax collectors. Uh, these people uh, hated Jesus and this audience. The religious crowd hated the publicans. They hated the harlots, the poor and needy, and the thieves, the people who had gathered there alongside them, the people they were trying to persuade not to follow Christ. The worst and marginalized of the society had found hope in Christ's message, but the other group did not. They resisted his grace. They despised his teachings, they despised his assertions, they resented his accusations of self righteousness. And here in our text, they resented his complicity, what they saw as his interaction with society's vilest people. They viewed Jesus' time spent with these evil men as a compromise, a religious compromise, as corruption. And when Jesus ate with them, they, they just lost it. In Jewish tradition, to eat with someone was to agree with them. And they said that Jesus is agreeing with sinners. But Jesus had already rebuffed this erroneous view. He told the keepers of the law, the scribes and Pharisees, that he met with them, he ate with them, because it is not the whole who need a physician, it's the sick. The people he ate with were the people that needed him. Yet they persisted. So in another attempt of confrontational love, clothed in a redemptive tale, Jesus tells the story of the two sons. Jesus is primarily speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees in hopes that they might receive the truth. And it's left unresolved in the story. For the most part, we know they never do. But to capture their attention, he tells this first part, the tale of the prodigal. He's telling a story they can relate to because they would hate the young man that he's telling the story about. And he begins the story of vilifying a man who had spurned the law of God and their traditions, and the Pharisees would have hated such a man. And today, I, I, I know in Mass, we probably all know the Lord here. I know some would not. As we consider the story told, we might ask the Lord if we can't see a part of ourselves in this first part of the story. And so, yeah, let me begin. A certain man had two sons. Each, as we will discover, were equally alienated from their father. They were alienated by their contempt of his authority. They, they were alienated by the law he asked them to keep. They were alienated by their love for money and what they could get for him. They not, neither so much loved the father as what the father could provide. The younger son, who evidently had long resented the limitations of the customs and the rules of society in his home, who thought gratification and unfettered autonomy, self-discovery and worldly pleasures could offer him a better life than he had in his father's house, made an unconscionable request. But before we get to the younger brother's insolent demand, some history and background will provide some help. Pinnacle in Jewish culture was reverence and respect for authority. 
and specifically reverence and respect for a mother and a father, for one's parents. This respect was born out of the fifth commandment uh, in the Decalogue that tells us that we should honor our mother and father and, and, and to do so comes with blessing, but to violate that comes with a curse. And so Jewish culture held in great reverence the patriarchy of a father, the matriarchal nurture of a mother. No greater violation could a man be guilty of than disrespecting his parents. The only thing greater would be of disrespecting God. The family was, of all things in the world, most precious to the Jews. One's duty was wrapped up in taking care of the family, of loving the family, of guiding the family, of leading the family, and that included not just a nuclear part, but extended family as well. Secondly, the community life, the, the village society was super important to the Jews. In this time, a man acted responsibly, not only so he would not shame his family, but also they would not shame his village. It was an agrarian culture where people all knew about each other and they loved each other. They took care of one another and no one wanted, no one wanted to bring shame upon the village. A man who had no home, a man who had no village, was seen as abhorrent, as an insult. It was unthinkable. And thirdly, land was important. And land was the primary inheritance that someone would, would receive. And it was important not so much for its monetary value, but the family legacy was tied to land. Um, this was my heritage. This is where I belong. This is what my ancestors were given from the days of Canaan to today, generation upon generation upon generation. My identity, my Jewishness uh, is a gift from God. It came from him. And I have been told in Leviticus and Deuteronomy not to ever sell my land to take care of it and steward it. It was a big thing to the Jewish culture. The land was part of who they were. It's a gift of God. In Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 21, the Bible tells Jewish people, you don't sell it. It's an inheritance forever. God instructed Jews that the land is never to be sold. But if they were ever to be in such a bad condition, they felt compelled to trade it for money, that they could do so, but it would be like a lease for a specific number of years that someone else maybe could farm and, and they could benefit. But every Jubilee, every seventh year, the land was reverted back to the original owners that God had given to that family, to that tribe. It was reverted back. It was simply an unconscionable act to actually sell one's land for monetary profit. It was unthinkable. It was an abandonment of one's family. It was an abandonment of God's gift. It was a forfeiture, a forfeiture of generations of effort and stewardship. It wasn't just your land. It was your father's land and your grandfather's land all the way back to Canaan. So with that in view, and back to Jesus' story, with that context in mind, the young prodigal asked for something that violated all of these laws and traditions. It violated his father's love, his father's heart, his father's home. It violated the community in which he lived in. And it violated God. 
What did he ask? Well, he demanded for his share of the inheritance to be given to him prematurely prior to his father's death. At this time, much like it is in our time, an inheritance was not passed on until after a person died. It was understood in Jewish culture that the sons co-owned the land with their father, but they could not dispossess it or sell it or do anything with it. They couldn't really even steward it the way they were supposed to until after the father died. This request has the tone in it. It would have had to understand in Jewish culture that the young man would have been saying this, I can't wait for you to die. That's what he's hearing. That's what the father is hearing. That's what the community is hearing. That's what Jews would have heard. I can't wait for you to die. I don't want to live under your rules and your laws. I don't want to live with any responsibility or attachment. I just want to go do what I want to do. Dad, give me my part now. I'm tired of living under your roof. I'm tired of doing what you say. I want to be free and unrestrained to be me. That just wasn't done in this time. We're used to it today. It wasn't done in this time. The disrespectful request was incredibly insolent. If that would have been happening in real time before the audience, that son would have been a candidate for stoning in that village. And everyone had agreed that would have been appropriate. That was the greatest violation of the fifth commandment. In those days, two-thirds of an inheritance went to the eldest son. The remaining went uh, to the other sons, in this case, a third to the younger. And, and you, that may sound unfair, but the idea in those days was a family was nuclear, even extended. And, and the, the eldest brother's wealth would have been shared among the larger and extended family, this is really a way to create family wealth, not, not diminish it. Again, the boys knew in a way that the land was theirs, but it was not theirs to steward just yet. And so the request is vile. But then an equally unthinkable thing happens. The father acquiesces and consents to the request. Now, this is something we'll consider probably two weeks from today. This would have shocked the hearers as much as what the younger son did. And I'll develop that later. But for today, the request is honored. For all practical purposes, in this request, the family tie is broken. Um, the view of the young man, would have, he would have understood that. In making this request, I am no longer a member of this family. That would have been the understanding of the elder brother. By that request, you're done. You're out of here. Not a part anymore. The entire village would have understood that. By that request, that man is divorcing his family. Everyone had that idea except the father. His heart, no doubt, was hurt, but he didn't see things as dissolved just yet. This is what the prodigal desired to escape, his dad, his righteous older brother, self-righteous. He didn't want any ties to the community, to the, the responsibilities of 
stewarding the land, being a guy who would be responsible one day. He didn't want any of that. I just want to be free. I'm going to live my life. So it was, for all practical purposes, an annulment of the family bond. Now, if that wasn't enough, this is, this is like shock upon shock upon shock to the Jewish hearers. If that wasn't enough, more is added. Quickly after being granted his inheritance, in verse number 13, the Bible says he gathered all together. Now, that doesn't mean, you got to understand, a lot of what he owned was land. It, it would have been maybe cattle or sheep. It would have been something that, that wasn't um, liquidated yet. And what the Bible says is in haste, quickly, not many days after, as soon as he could get to gather all that was his, the Bible says he liquidated it. No doubt selling it for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> you say, what else would he do? People didn't sell their land. They didn't, that was their assets. This was the ultimate disrespect to his heritage. The land had been farmed and, and, and taken care of for generations. It was family land. It was God's land. It was the Jewish land. In the Greek, he cashed out. He liquidated his assets. He sold his birthright like Esau for a piece of bread, for a few bucks. For the sake of pleasure, he sold the accumulated work and effort and heritage in honor of his family for dollars. Just like that, it's gone. From the time of Canaan, it was gone and lost. He didn't care. He gave no thought to the disrespect. He didn't think of his fathers and grandfathers. His love of his dad, I don't understand, drew cold. The concern of his own name meant nothing to him. He didn't care about the community. He was just insolent and inconceivably selfish. He was deceived and wicked. Can't get worse, can it? It does. He leaves. We, just, we read these verses so quickly. He leaves and goes into the far country. You, you, you didn't do that either. He was disavowing his, Jewish, his Jewishness. He was going to the land of the Gentiles, not temporarily for trade. He was going to live there. He's, he was, in all effects, rejecting his faith. He was living with, with the pagans, the idolaters, the heathen. He wasn't there to win them. He wasn't there for short temporary business. He was there to live among them and be like them. He just didn't leave his home. He left his village. He left his country. He travels to the country of the Gentiles. For people who had no love for God. This was a spit in the face to his Jewish heritage. I, I, don't, I couldn't find any real comparison you know, for us today. That, that maybe would be like during the time of World War II fighting Nazi Germany that some American went and sided with Hitler. Something like that maybe. It was inconceivable for this to happen. It was an atrocity to what God had asked in his word. And this would have shattered his family's heart even more. 
This was shame upon shame upon shame he's putting on his dad. And the village would have just held the greatest contempt for him. And can it get worse? And the answer is yes. The downward trajectory of this anathema behavior is not yet reached. Once in the heathen land, he begins to prodigal his inheritance. The word prodigal here means primarily wasted. In the Greek, it literally means like if you were to take um, wheat and how you, you would throw that in the husk into the air and, and, the, and the chaff would blow away, that's prodigal. It's being blown away. He's throwing away his money in our vernacular. In those days, to give stuff away was a way you earned friends. Not real friends, you know, but an audience. And he, he probably went in there, the big guy, and he began to throw away dollars here and throw away dollars there. He was involved in what the Bible indicates as licentious living. It's the idea is immorality. He wasted his money on, on harlots. He was just exchanging. I, I want you to understand this. He's exchanging what he had for something else. It is an exchange. It is a transaction that is being made. We do this all the time with the dollars we have. We have dollars. We exchange it for something else. But those dollars we have represent something. What do they represent? Well, for me, they represent my work, my life, what I have given my last week to. And because that is true, I'm somewhat selective of the exchanges that I make. And especially with the money that we all have that comes in a limited quantity, those exchanges should be thoughtful and careful and have a priority about them. But none were true for the prodigal in the wind, licentious living, harlots here, drinking here, living it up, having a great time, unrestrained and free. That's what he traded his family wealth for. His Jewishness for. His Christianity today for. An incredible exchange. He'd already sold his inheritance. He'd already given away his good name, his family honor. He exchanged his cultural identity for a pagan one. And now the man begins to sell his soul. He exchanged the father's love for licentious living. He exchanged the legacy for carnal pleasure. He exchanged the lasting for the temporary. He sold his future. He let go of goodness and love, all his upbringing and training, of the responsibility that should not have been resented, but he should have been proud of. He sold it off for a good time. It's an exchange that we sometimes make. Isn't this the point of the parable a little bit? For me to draw this juxtaposition for us here today? Otherwise, we could be just like the Pharisees. What a bad guy. We'll get to that. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Where's the intelligence in exchanging that which is of lesser value for eternal value? Like your name. 
should mean something to you. Not in a prideful way. I have a couple names. I have one that's called Troy. I have a Durrell name that traces my ancestry back a little bit. I'm a Durrell. I have another name. It's Pastor. Many of you call me by that. I have another name. It's called Child of God. Christian. Probably should protect all those names. He traded safety and security. He traded community like this for that. I don't, I don't get it. I think what we have here is kind of special, don't you? I don't know. Yeah, I, hey, yeah, there's rules here. Sure there are. I, I don't think they're oppressive or mean or bad-spirited. I don't yell at people. I don't see any of you doing that. I don't sense an overly judgmental spirit in our midst. I'm sure it resides at some level. I don't understand why kids want to leave. I'm not talking about because they move away. Why would you resent this? But he did. The rewards of a, a, res, a life of responsibility, like Daniel was talking about, not for, not for carnal things, but man, to live your life for God, he, he gave that away. He gave away family and their love. <laughs> you know, this is really not the intent of the text, but it comes to my mind. Why would someone do that? Why do people do this? To me, it seems like a form of insanity. That's what the text sort of indicates when he came to himself. Like the guy was delusional. What's that incongruity? Why those exchanges? Why those trades? What causes someone to give away their birthright? Christian. Durrell. Pastor. Responsibility. To act so selfishly, to dishonor and disrespect so much. I can promise you this, it wasn't the father. Maybe the elder brother, you know, try to live with that guy. He's, he's given the religion a bad name. He's, he's always telling me everything I'm doing wrong. And, and I, I'm just saying there are people who said they walk away from the faith because of the self-righteous act of others. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but it is something to consider. And I think it was in play in the text. Maybe we just don't like rules. Um, maybe we've actually bought the delusional lie that unrestrained freedom is better somehow. Hey, do we live in that culture today of self-identification? Let me be what I want to be rather than what God created me to be. And, and there's a lot there if you consider it. And then it's about a lot more than gender identity. It's a whole lot about just selfish autonomy. Because we don't want to live by anyone's rules, even if the rules are there because of love. I have no obligation to anyone but me, is today's ideology. My life, postmodernism, my truth, and my way. I think this. I think it's maybe just unfettered sin. 
allowed to grow and unchecked, rebellion. The love of God, the law of God had become distant in his rearview mirror. And because of that, the wages of sin came due. The wages of sin are death, the Bible says, and the death of everything good, not just physical death, but death of relationships, death of finances, death of, death of happiness and joy. Death came. And the text says he spent all. He made a complete exchange. He traded it all away. The older brother's commentary was he consumed it. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's crazy. One perspective is I'm, I'm giving it away. My contention is this. The far country will take what you have. It's going to take what you have. I don't think his goal was to be impoverished. He, it's just, at some point, the bad decisions accumulated, and it just kept going. The far country will take everything you have, even your soul and time. Sin, bad choices, way we're living, exact a price. And we don't always have the ability to stop it, to halt it. Seeds sown can grow into an evil crop that overwhelm and drown in time. And then the famine comes, the physical um, exemplification, the illustration of what had already happened in his heart spiritually. A famine in here existed long before the famine out there. And that's the way it usually works. And the Bible says that he began to be in want. <laughs> in every conceivable way. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. His disregard had now turned into destruction, desolation. So he became a leech and a beggar. He joined himself to the citizens of that country. Here's what this means. Do not be unkind. Tara and I have been on a few cruises and we get off the ship and these boys all start come and, and they run to you. And they attach themselves to you. And they're suddenly, I'm going to be your guide and I'm going to take you to the restaurant. And I'm going to do all these things. And, and your best efforts to persuade them to leave doesn't work. And until they get something from you, they, they won't go away. That's what the prodigal son was doing. He attached himself. Most likely a Roman citizen didn't want him there, but he wouldn't go away. So here's the insult added upon insult added upon insult. What often happened in these cultures when a man attached himself to a wealthier man, the man would offer a job that was so disgusting that the, that the beggar would be repulsed by it and said, I'm not doing that and walk away. Well, that's exactly what the Roman citizen did. He knew this man was a Jew. He knew he was a Jew despite not living like one. So I said, why don't you go feed my swine? Swine, pigs are anathema to Jews. So you go live with them and you feed them. So great was his rebellion, he took the job. See, he could have gone home at any time before this, but his rebellious heart has not yet um, reached rock bottom. I'll take the job. No one said he'd be like, oh my, I can't believe that. How pathetic. And he took it. And he feeds swine. 
He's gone so far, he's looking at this pig slop. And in the Greek, the idea is that he, he envied it. He wanted that. This, this guy, had, he was at rock bottom. But he wasn't yet ready to respond. His deprivation of soul and life had become so bad that he became desirous of pig food. No man, the Bible says, was giving to him. If someone, I'm telling you, if someone would have passed by, now you got to do the mental picture here. If somebody would have passed by and said, dude, you want out of all this? No, man, I'm just fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm loving this, this job. You know those people? They're out in the world. Their life is miserable. Finance a wreck. Relationships are all over the place. Hey, would you like some help? No, I'm good. Yes, I'm okay. I, I like it here with the pigs. I like it here with people where people don't love me, don't care, really care about me. They act like they do, but they don't. Right. It doesn't matter how rational the appeal becomes. People live in this delusional lie. I'm okay. All the while they're saying it, they're trying to convince themselves that it's true. Let me ask you a question. And I gotta, I gotta finish. And I, I'm talking to pretty respectable people today. And we have great teens. But at another level, how long are you and I gonna believe the lie that we're over, that we're okay making some of the exchanges that we're making? I'm not going to get specific. I don't think I need to. Some wouldn't be terribly evil. They would just be worthless. The things we consume, the thing we spend money on, the thing we give life to, the hours we doom scroll, you're going to take the gift of God and do that with it? Are the trade-offs you're making in life worth it? Some aren't asking for much yet, but they will. And before you know it, your soul may be gone. Your intellect may be gone. Your emotional health may be gone. How long are you going to stay in the far country? Well, I'm in church today. I know. Well, this text isn't about people like this. This is about lost people. You're right, it is. That's the intent. But Christians sometimes vacation in the far country. They have little side routes there. I'm just not sure that they're coming back the same way they went in, in the same condition. Many of us could look malnourished today. We could be perishing for hunger. We're really not taking much of this in. I think there's a warning here for us, a danger. We can get away with sin. There's no harm in it. We can control the consequences, but I don't think that's true. And by the way, I think fitting to the story, we can say, well, we know people who are in the far country, but I wonder, which, I wonder what hurts 
God's hurt the most. When a sinner lives like a sinner or when a Christian lives like a sinner. The one who comes from a good family, a good home, has been in church. I wonder which one hurts the heart of God more. I'm just going with the parable here. Let me conclude. The prophet comes to himself in verse 17. The idea is that he gets smart. I don't know if he really has repentance yet. I think he's devising a plan. I think that you just you have a different plan. I think what he's saying is this. Here's what I got to do. I, this is not going to work for me. I got to get smart. I have no food. So I'm, I'm, go, I'm, I, I'm going to go home and say, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you, Dad. And, and what, he, what he wants here, he's going to bargain with his father. Give me a job. Let me be an apprentice. Let me work my debts off. This is another sermon. I'm not sure he's there yet. I'm not sure he actually repents until his dad falls on his neck and kisses him. When he watches his dad run to him. I think it was then that he came to himself, really. Like, what is that? What kind of grace is that? Because he finally accepted, I can't, I can't pay this off. The debt's too great. He couldn't. Couldn't. I think that's when the young man really came to himself. Uh, he's not going to give me a job. He's not going. It's just. It's either grace or nothing, and that's the way faith is. See today. Here's the deal. I, I I don't want you to believe today that you've gone too far. That you're. I don't want you to negotiate your terms of coming back. Well, man, I'll come back and I'll be a better Christian and I'll do this and I'll do this and this. Hey, maybe you will and you should. You should, but not out of a bargaining chip, out of love for God, out of a love of a father who will run and meet you when you decide to get your heart right and repent. When your escapades of the far country are finally over, you, you can't manipulate God. You come to him on his terms.